General, if you do not divide the second division, but put it in line as a unit on a narrow front, I'm confident it will be able to take Blancmont Ridge, advance beyond it, and hold its position. Major General John Archer Lejeune, United States Marine Corps. Commanding General, 2nd Division AEF to General Henry Garreau, Commanding General, 4th French Army, Chalon Samor, France, September 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 67, Champagne, Blancmont, part one. Opening our Blancmont episodes is our recent guest, Stephen Girard, retired U.S. Army NCO and historian of the 4th Brigade Marine 2nd Division AEF. Steve will be opening all of the Blancmont episodes for us, and I thank him greatly for it. All right, kicking it off with the admin notes. I'm happy to report that William is the latest patron of the BFWWP to join us on Patreon. William and other patrons on Patreon have early access to all new episodes, as well as operations maps, transcripts, and bibliographies for those episodes. They will also have other perks, such as not-yet-released episodes and being able to submit a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability. Patrons also have the possibility of naming a battle they'd like to hear covered on the show. If you are able and interested in becoming a member of the BFWWP PALS Battalion, point your internets to patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast, and you can sign up there. You will only be charged when an episode is released, and your patronage is greatly appreciated. So, this episode, we're shifting back closer to the Meurs-Argonne, but we're not going back there just yet. We're stopping in the Champagne region just to the west of the Meurs-Argonne to get a sense of where we'll be And if you're not currently driving, set your Google Maps to the city of Rennes. French pronunciation there. Hang on a second. I'll spell it because it sounds fairly different from how it's spelled. R-E-I-M-S. Yes, this is the city with the famous Cathedrale Notre-Dame de Rennes, where centuries ago French kings were crowned. Rennes was nearly a frontline city during the war, and it received its share of punishment from German artillery. Go due east of Rennes, and you'll see a village named Sompy-Tahour. S-O-M-M-E-P-Y. Our episode will take us just north of this village, where the second of three low east-west ridgelines run. From this middle ridgeline, just 200 meters in height, but dominating the rolling farmland in low hills all the way west to Rennes, Kaiser Wilhelm II himself had watched his legions as they marched forward in their Friedensturm offensive earlier that summer. This middle ridgeline was the Blancmont Massif, so named for the white chalk soil of the Champagne region. 
It was part of a chain of hills known as Les Monts, which in French translates to the mountains or the hills. Blancmont not only helped put German eyes on Rennes, 40-some kilometers away, but this ridge dominated the lands to the south and east to the edge of the Argonne as well. By September of 1918, the ridge had been in German hands for four long years, with the French having hammered away at it repeatedly, but unsuccessfully in that time frame. Blancmont was an anchor of the Siegfried Stellung, the well-known Hindenburg Line, and more locally, it formed the third main line of resistance for the German Third Army. From it, a spur named by the Germans Sattelberg jutted toward the south, and this provided a commanding height for the low-lying areas to the immediate south. For years, a rear-guard position when the front line was further south, this third line was now the most important one, as Blancmont provided the last defensible high ground before the Enne River line, 30 kilometers to the north. Between Blancmont Ridge and the village of Sompy was a distance of roughly four kilometers, and the German second main line of resistance now ran just north of the devastated village. The Germans had three trench lines here, Pasha, Essen, and Elbe. From Sompy, there runs a road going north-northwest to Blancmont, from where it turns decidedly northwest to the village of Saint-Étienne-à-Arne. To clear up one name, Essen here is spelled E-S-S-E-N, like the city in Germany. North of Blancmont, the ground opened up to the northeast, to the northwest, Ludwigsrocken Ridge formed the ground over which the Somme-Pi-Sonetian Road ran, and an attacking force would need to seize this next ridge to take the next village. Southeast of Sonetian was Bloodnitz Hill, a.k.a. Hill 160, another high point in the rolling farmland that would need to be taken as well in order to clear the area. North of Sonetian and on eastward, ran the Germans' fourth main line of resistance. The Germans held this area for so long that by 1918, even French maps used the German place names. Of course, German engineers wasted no time in the four years they occupied the Champagne region. Dugouts were mined deep out of the chalk and limestone. Pillboxes, bunkers, and machine gun nests were built along the lines of resistance and miles of now-rusted barbed wire channeled any future attacks into pre-sighted killing zones. It was, as elsewhere, on the Western Front. Since the beginning of the French Fourth Army's offensive on the 26th of September, the Poilus, under General Henri Gohol's command, had pushed up over five and a half kilometers from the south in their latest bid to retake Blancmont once and for all. German machine gun and artillery fire had ground them to a halt here, north of the ruins of Sompy. The French were at the foot of the long-sought ridge, but they were exhausted. Even before the start of the joint Franco-American offensive on the 26th, General Gohol had already requested American assistance ten days earlier. Three days before the offensive launched, the one-armed Lion of Champagne learned 
that he would be receiving only two of the three American divisions he had requested. It would have been curious to know what Gohol initially thought of the units he would be allowed to borrow, the now-seasoned AEF 2nd Division and the Green-as-Green-Grass 36th Division out of Texas. The 36th Division was a division of raw troops who had practically just disembarked off the boats that brought them overseas. But in the 2nd Division, Gohol had 28,000 veteran fighters to work with. Raised and organized on French soil, a hybrid of United States Marine Corps and Doughboys, the American 2nd Division had been through nearly every major engagement the American Expeditionary Force had been in in 1918. Belleau Wood and Chateau Thierry, Soissons and the Second Battle of the Marne, and most recently, saint Miel. The division had hemorrhaged so many men in combat operations that there was a quiet policy known as the 20% rule in effect in the line units. More on that later. Leave it to your enemy to give you the best label or descriptor, though. The Germans knew that when they faced the 2nd Division, they were in for a tough time. Later, the Germans would give the warrior division the status of a quote-unquote shock unit, a standard on par with Sturmtruppen. In September of 1918, this crack division was led by no less than Major General John A. Lejeune himself. The first Marine commander of a United States Army unit, Lejeune was a born military man. The son of a former Confederate Army officer, a young Lejeune joined the Marine Corps in 1890 at age 23, and it wouldn't be until 1929, when he was Commandant of the Corps, that he would retire from military service. Major General Lejeune arrived in theater in June 1918 and at the beginning of July received his promotion to Major General. He was given command of a brigade of the 32nd Red Arrow Division, but was quickly transferred over to command the 4th Brigade, Marine, of the 2nd Division. By the end of July, he was commanding the entire 2nd Division, and here he would stay until August of 1919. The general was a quick learner, and he demonstrated an adaptive tactical ability combined with an increased readiness to jettison AEF doctrine when he deemed it necessary to do so. He was also a man who wasn't afraid to stand up for what he believed in, and he was willing to dig in on those beliefs. We will shortly see examples of both of these traits. On the 25th, as the American 1st and French 4th Armies prepared to begin the first of four major Allied offensives, Lejeune called on General Gohol at his headquarters in chalon sur marne In the American general's own words from his memoir, The Reminiscences of a Marine, Gohol, quote, greeted me most cordially and invited me into his private office. I was deeply impressed by his appearance, his face, his manner, and his words. Tall, erect, with heavy dark brown beard and hair, and a complexion burnt dark by the blazing sun of Africa where he had seen so many years of army service, he would be a striking-looking man in any company, especially as his distinguished appearance was enhanced by an empty sleeve and a very prominent limp. His gallant service in the Gallipoli campaign was already well known to me 
as it was to all students of that heroic struggle. I had read, too, of the desperate nature of his wounds, which had very nearly resulted in the loss of a leg in addition to an arm. We had a long and intimate conversation concerning the Second Division, and he displayed much interest in its outstanding achievements, telling me with great pride that he, too, was a Marine, as indicated by the cocky-colored field uniform which he wore, while French officers not belonging to the colonial forces wore the sky-blue uniform. End quote. Lejeune was taken in by the French officer. Throughout the interview, Lejeune wrote, his steel-blue eyes seemed to search my very soul. At its end, I felt he had obtained a thorough knowledge of my character and that he knew what manner of man I was. I was tremendously impressed by this lame, rather taciturn General Gouraud. I sensed that he was a man of power with a will of iron, but kindly withal. I acquired confidence in his judgment and in his justness. I believed him to be a general whom it would be a delight to follow. This estimate of him was strengthened by everything I afterwards observed. His words were few, but his commands were instantly obeyed. There was real discipline at his headquarters. He never showed any temper or excitement. He was always calm, placid, and unhurried. He showed himself to be a great soldier, a great leader, and a most lovable man. Gouraud insisted that evening that Lejeune and Colonel Ray, his aide, stay and have dinner with the 4th Army staff. Gouraud himself went out to the line to meet with his corps and division commanders. The Americans stayed for dinner and reported that it was, quote, wholesome and ample, but the simplest I had seen at any French headquarters mess, end quote. Fourth Army staff was a small group of men whom Lejeune discerned were dedicated. The Fourth Army headquarters seemed to reflect Gouraud's very personality, and Jean Archer Lejeune was impressed by it. On the 26th, Lejeune traveled twice to the French headquarters to figure out what was going on with the Allied advance and where his division would fit into it. The news from the front was fairly good. On the 26th, the Americans were advancing in the Meuse, and the Poilus were pushing north. But on the 27th, Colonel Ray returned with some alarming news. The French had plans indeed for the 2nd Division, and they weren't good. Due to the massive size of American divisions, then well over twice as large as a French infantry division, the 4th Army staff planned on splitting up the brigades and attaching them to French units. Lejeune and his staff would be in charge of nothing but themselves. Despite it being a rumor, Lejeune trusted Colonel Ray's report. Without waiting to verify the accuracy of the rumor, Lejeune shot over to Gouraud's headquarters to talk it out with him. American divisions were not to be split up. Per orders from General John J. Pershing and the Secretary of War Newton Baker themselves. Lejeune got his meeting with Gouraud, and the two officers, quote, went into his private office and, standing in front of the relief map, he described the progress of the attack. The French troops had advanced some distance beyond the line of Buttes, but their left had been checked by a strong defensive position running along the Pea Brook from Somme-Pee to Sainte-Marie-Pee, and then 
in a southwesterly direction to the Sweep River. No infantry attack had been made between that river and Rennes owing to the location of the enemy line on a powerfully fortified range of high hills known as Les Monts, which it had been decided was too strong to be carried by direct assault. The right wing of his army had been able to make a somewhat deeper advance than the left, owing to the more favorable nature of the terrain. Some four kilometers north of the Pea Brook, at Sompi, was a great range of hills in the shape of an arc of a circle, the left of which approached Pea Brook near its confluence with the sweep, and was known as Notre-Dame-de-Champs. This range culminated opposite Sompi in a high ridge of which the main feature was designated Les Massifs du Blancmont, and thence continued for some distance in an easterly direction via Medea Farm and Orfoy at a gradually decreasing altitude. General Gohot explained that on this ridge was located the enemy main line of resistance on the front of his army, and that up to that time the operations had been confined to a struggle for the possession of outpost positions, no attacks having been made on the main position. He then placed his hand on the part of the ridge lying between Medea Farm and Blancmont, and said, If I could take this position by assault, advance beyond it to the vicinity of saint etienne à arnes and hold the ground gained against the counterattacks which would be hurled against my troops, the enemy would be compelled to evacuate Notre-Dame-de-Champs and Les Monts, thereby freeing Rennes, which he has been strangling for four years, and fall back to the line of the N, a distance of nearly 30 kilometers, as the terrain between the ridges and the N does not lend itself well to defense. He added, My divisions, however, are worn out from the long strain of continuous fighting and from the effects of the heavy casualties they have suffered, and it is doubtful if they are now equal to accomplishing this difficult task unless they be heavily reinforced. Lejeune didn't hesitate, and if Gohot had set a bait for the American general, he fell for it. In French, the Marine told Gohot, General, if you do not divide the second division, but put it in line as a unit on a narrow front, I am confident that it will be able to take Blancmont Ridge, advance beyond it, and hold its position there. To which Gohot readily agreed, with the addition that, quote, he had no intention whatever of dividing the second division, and that, in fact, it was not attached to his army, but was being held at the disposition of Marshal Foch and Marshal Pétain. He paused a few moments and then said, I will, however, bring to Marshal Pétain's attention what you have just said. End quote. So, the second division would be assigned to take Blancmont Ridge. At the end of the month, the Marines and Doughboys began to enter the battle area near Somapi. This is what many historians of the Blancmont battle describe as the tragedy of the whole event. The French wanted the Massif cleared at whatever cost. The Germans, at this stage of the game, weren't so intent on holding on to Blancmont as they were intent on conducting a bloody fighting withdrawal that would make the Americans pay a steep price in blood for every inch of ground won. As others have noted, both the French and Germans 
would get what they wanted. On the German side of things, this idea of a bloody withdrawal was an extension of the battlefield principle explained by German Ernst Otto, a retired lieutenant colonel in the German army who wrote a series of articles in the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Journal in 1930. As the war progressed, and especially after Hindenburg and Ludendorff took over in the West in 1916, quote, it was generally less important to hold any piece of terrain than to inflict heavy losses on the enemy for its possession, end quote. With the failure of the peace offensive, Lieutenant Colonel Otto wrote that it was essential that by every possible means the defensive should be so conducted as to inflict ever-increasing losses on the enemy, so that, to avoid further bloodshed, they might offer Germany an acceptable peace. Hence, the German army, on July 20, 1918, no longer fought for final victory, but simply to secure for the fatherland an endurable peace. The German army had plans to conduct a strategic retreat to a line between the Oise and the Argonne Forest, but, quote, each retreat movement will be utilized to inflict heavy enemy losses wherever possible, even by counterattacks of the most unimportant nature. Only by following this method will it be possible to guard the troops against the moral dangers of retreat and hold them firmly in hand. End quote. The German army was fighting to secure a strong peace for itself and the German people, but clearly the soldiers would also have to die in potentially pointless counterattacks in order to keep up morale. At this stage in the war, Germany knew it was beaten. The Central Powers were collapsing. The days after the 26th of September brought ever worse news. On the 27th, the British launched a massive offensive at Cambrai. On the 28th, King Albert of Belgium led an army group on an offensive between the English Channel and the River Lee. It was also the same day that Bulgaria bowed out of the war, leaving the back door to Germany itself open. On the 29th, as a Franco-British attack was launched northeast of the old Somme battlefields, the Army High Command went to the Imperial German government to start talking about an armistice. Blancmont and the surrounding region lay under the jurisdiction of the German Third Army, commanded by General Oberst Karl von Einem. Command of the Blancmont area of operations came under the German 12th Army Corps, Erste Königlich Sachsisches, commanded by one General der Kavallerie Hans Heinrich Ludwig Holland Krug von Nieder, who had these rocket mutton chops that were as long as his name. Krug von Nieder had served in the war's opening months, but in May 1916, he was relieved due to a severe health crisis of which details are short. He would not return to the front for some 16 months, where he was posted to the then-quiet Champagne sector in the fall of 1917. He had enough experience to know that the French may have been halted by the 30th of September, but it was just that, a halt. A new attack was coming and he knew exactly where it would hit. On October 1st, von Nieder informed the men in his corps command. The main stress of the hostile offensive is clearly recognizable as lying between the Sompi and Sonetien Road, 
and Al-Samid, and will continue to be exerted on that point. The numerous reserves, which have crossed the eastern basin of the Pea Brook in a northerly direction, in an uninterrupted flow throughout the day, as well as the great number of tanks hitherto unemployed in the line, which have disappeared from support positions, leave no doubt that, on October 2nd, a hostile attack is to be expected in the same combat zone, and that it will be at least as severe as yesterday's attack. It can only be warded off if the long and unfavorably located front line is reinforced by fresh forces, which could be placed in support in the line that extends from the south slope of Schlesier Hill to the northwest edge of Rheinische Grund at the boundary line between the sectors of the 7th and 15th Bavarian Infantry Divisions. The forces of the group are at present insufficient to properly accomplish this operation, despite the switch position that has been thrown up between Helen and Hill, Notre-Dame-de-Champ, and the southern corner of the third main line of resistance, the establishment of which was forced upon the command after the combat strength of the 51st Reserve and the Bavarian Infantry Divisions had melted to almost negligible qualities. Fonita had elements of four divisions manning the third main line of resistance, of which Blancmont formed a part, the 200th, the 51st Reserve, the 203rd, and the 3rd Guards Divisions. These units were supported by elements of two other divisions, the 17th and the 195th. The 200th and 195th Divisions were made up of Jaeger regiments, who were considered to be elite troops. The Frontkämpfer of the 200th Division manned the new front lines just north of Sompi, and the 51st Reserve Division held Blancmont itself. Von Nida's troops had some 200 artillery pieces at their disposal, a mix of mortars, field guns, and howitzers. As stated above, the German 12th Corps had the elements of six infantry divisions in their sector of the front, but this was not a true indicator of actual combat strength. The divisions, even the elite ones, were all war-hardened veterans, but they were all dramatically under strength. Von Nida's divisions averaged around 2,000 men each. Regiments were down to the size of lean battalions, and battalions were down to company size. The 3rd Guards Division was in particularly bad shape, as reported on the 2nd of October. Quote, the heavy losses, the superhuman demands placed on the physical capacities of the men during the past few days have reduced the combat value of the division, not entirely satisfactory even before employment in lines, to a most dangerous degree. Physically and morally, the troops have now arrived at the extreme limit of their endurance. At the present time, the trench strength of the division has shrunk to 350 men who are holding a line two kilometers long. The division requests to be relieved. End quote. A battalion commander in the 200th Division wrote a similar report. I consider it my duty to call attention to the present condition of the troops. As a result of physical and mental exertions, the troops have grown apathetic and indifferent to such an alarming extent that I can no longer guarantee that, during a surprise attack, they will continue to hold the positions. The Germans' grasp on organization had long since started to slip, and in defensive battles they were throwing in units 
and pieces of units pell-mell into the fire. As a result, morale was suffering. The command of the 213th lamented this practice. Quote, If a division is employed in lines uniformly, under its own trusted leaders, and not at numerous points of the front at one time, its men will give their utmost and obey orders in spite of inadequate training. But its combat value may be substantially deteriorated if the practice of scattering organizations under strange leadership is continued, and if the troops are thrown into combat only after constant movements have prematurely exhausted them." The Germans were also scraping the bottom of the barrel to drum up combat strength for the line. Supply clerks were being put into the trenches, as was a battalion of Landsturm troops, men who were likely twice as old as the average soldier in the field, but only half as trained. This was what they had to work with, though, and von Nieder set about preparing his men for the coming onslaught. The three main lines of resistance all featured multiple trench lines replete with bunkers, strongpoints, and machine gun nests. The Germans created a thinly manned outpost zone of machine gunners and artillery observers that would serve to slow down the attacking force. On the Blancmont battlefield, the 234th and 235th Reserve Infantry Regiments and a group of combat engineers held the outpost zone from the SN trench system just north of saint to the beginning of the third line in Blancmont. Three withered battalions of the 74th Reserve Infantry Regiment manned Blancmont itself. These guys would be ready to launch the required counterattacks against any enemy gains. The remnants of one German division would be on standby to launch further attacks within 24 hours of the planned enemy attack. The Germans were as ready as they could be. Opposite them was the French 21st Corps under Major General Stanislaus Naulin, with three divisions from left to right, the French 21st Infantry, the American 2nd, and the French 17th Infantry Divisions. The Americans manned the line with the 4th Brigade Marine, north of the ruins of Sompi, on the 1st of October, 1918. They faced those three trench lines mentioned earlier in front of them, Pasha, Essen, and Elba. A young Marine lieutenant named Clifton Cates and his 96th Company found that these trenches were guarded by German outpost men who tossed grenades their way repeatedly. But Cates and his superiors found that there was a bigger issue to his left front, a section of the Essen trench line that went around a hill. This curve in the line was known as the Essen Hook, and it was a position in the enemy's line that offered excellent enfilade fire capabilities. It dominated the local area. Major General Lejeune met with Major General Naulin, and together with Lejeune's two brigade commanders, Brigadier General Wendell Neville of the 4th Brigade, Marine, and Brigadier General Hanson Eli of 3rd Brigade, a plan of attack was created Lejeune would not brook a frontal assault on Blancmont. Instead, what he envisioned was a two-brigade attack that would converge on the enemy's third main line of resistance, the Blancmont Massif. The attacks would come at the enemy from oblique angles, which was a violation of AEF doctrine. 
The two brigades would attack on either side of a small wood north of Saint-Mapie named Bois de Viper, a.k.a. Viper Wood. The wood would be bypassed altogether and would be mopped up later by follow-on forces. The brigades would attack on a one-kilometer battalion-wide front, with the battalions in column, meaning one behind the other, separated by roughly a half-kilometer or less. On the left, the 6th Marine Regiment would lead the attack, with the 5th Marine Regiment in support. On the right, the 9th Infantry Regiment, Manchus, keep up the fire, would lead, with the 23rd Infantry Regiment in support. Two French light tank battalions of FT-17 Renault baby tanks would lead each brigade assault. The plans for the artillery ensured it played its key role in the battle. There would only be a five-minute hurricane bombardment by the division's guns to plaster the Germans in their lines. Additional French artillery would be firing in support as well. After that, a rolling barrage would batter its way up the enemy-held slope at a rate of 100 meters every four minutes. For the 12th Field Artillery Regiment, this meant putting 15 shells through their 75mm guns a minute. When the creeping barrage landed on the Blancmont Medea Farm Road on the Massif's crest, the guns would halt and simply pound the ridge for 30 minutes as the Marines dug in behind the wall of falling steel. A battalion of the 12th Field Artillery was on standby, ready to move forward over liberated ground to new positions so they could continue supporting the Marines of 4th Brigade. Lejeune's plan was to have artillery always available in order to protect his riflemen and succeed at the same time. Where they weren't breaking with AEF tactical doctrine completely, Lejeune and the 2nd Division leadership were adapting it from experience to make it better on the human capital they led. There was another plan within the plan put into effect, that 20% rule we mentioned earlier. The 2nd Division's officers and men had learned that this world war was something very different from other recent conflicts in America's past. 3,400 Marines and doughboys from the ranks were assigned as stretcher-bearers. These veteran fighters would sit out the battle, or at least part of it, because they had a follow-on mission of their own, to reconstitute their companies after they were slaughtered in the coming battle. These men would be the experienced corps around which new companies and battalions could be rebuilt. It was a sobering and chilling recognition of this war's brutal reality. Major General Nolan wanted the attack to go in on the 2nd of October, but Lejeune stood his ground and convinced the Frenchman to give him one more day. Nolan might be hot to send American troops over the top, but Lejeune was set on preparing his troops as much as he possibly could. The extra day gave the artillery time to get into their proper positions, and it gave time for officers on the ground to further survey the terrain they would be attacking. Lejeune also covered his men by issuing his orders with what he called the saving clause. He would give orders, but he would only give the actual attack time later. This gave his officers the necessary instructions needed to prepare for battle and ensured they wouldn't be rushed in only half ready and unsupported. 
It also gave time for the French and Americans to clear some trenches immediately out front to secure better jump-off lines. On the afternoon of the 2nd, the French 137th Infantry Regiment, the regiment of the Trench of Bayonets at Verdun, attacked the Essen Hook position and seized it. The Marines seized some trenches ahead of them after short, sharp fights with German troops that melted away. On the 2nd Division's right, the 3rd Brigade was not yet in the line, and the Doughboys would march all night through darkness, miserably rainy and raw weather, unknown terrain, and missed guide link-ups before they arrived early in the morning on the 3rd. On both sides of the line, plans were set. Men were busy digging in, consolidating or improving the positions they held. No small amount of confusion reigned, as in the autumn darkness and wet weather troops moved up as others moved out. Last-minute changes in orders were constantly coming down, and everyone adjusted as best as they could. Ammunition was brought up. Guns were maneuvered into gun pits. In 4th Brigade's sector, at least Marine Private Elton Mackin's company had completed a grim task they no longer had to worry about. In Mackin's memoir, Suddenly, We Didn't Want to Die, he wrote of a scene that revealed the macabre environment he and his Marines found themselves in. Quote, It was hard to say just when day gave way to night. As the first of us passed through the ruins of Salmapi, the last faint light of evening was fading in the western sky, while overhead the great silvery disk of the moon grew golden as we watched. An hour before, the Alpine chasseurs had carried their attack into the twin line of trenches on the hill beyond the town. The last of the wounded were coming down, and we flattened ourselves against the earthen walls of the communications trench to let the stretchers pass. The trenches held the rancid smell of burned powder and raw earth. The dead that we tossed downhill behind the trench were new and soft, almost warm. They rolled or fell like loose-filled sacks, their arms and legs asprawl in grotesque attitudes. At one point, a large shell had blown a steep-sided crater just outside the parados and blasted out a part of the trench wall, making a convenient place for disposal of the debris of battle. The fellows hurried through the trench with the bodies and, grunting, heaved them overside into the hole. A squeamish lad of ours, new at the front, refused to help with policing up the place. He just stood aside in awe and watched men work. Once, under the hoarse-whispered curse of a sergeant, he essayed to lend a hand, gingerly holding to a booted foot, sickened by the feel of it. The lad seemed fascinated standing aside from the blown-out wall of trench and staring downward to where the moon probed at the twisted mass of dead things. Men have their way of making jokes, their ways of breaking men, of disciplining. As the last of the bodies were pitched into the pit, two husky lads grasped the squeamish fellow from behind, lifted him face down and swung him, pitching him headlong into the yawning hole. His hoarse scream was muffled quickly as he fell. As he clawed his way frantically up the steep slope and into the trench, a non-crom grabbed him and slapped him suddenly and hard to still his babbling. Quiet there, you punk. What the hell's the matter? Did you fall in? Quiet there. What's up? What's all the noise? It was Lieutenant Gear, his voice an angry threat. 
Then no, Lieutenant. Guess the kid fell in the hole with the stiffs. Scared him. Damn it, Sergeant. Keep the man quiet, can't you? There's Germans in that trench right over there. A Maxim yapped and rapped, questioning. A great bright flare arced up and blinded us. We stood in frozen poise and held our breath. The light sputtered down into the waste of no man's land, dimmed and suddenly went out. Relaxed, we dared to move and breathe again. The lieutenant hurried off along the trench. The lad staggered to a patch of shadow, hid from the moon by a bend in the trench, and retched violently. There came a muffled laugh, a chuckling, questioning voice. Seasick, son? The men were quiet, resting after toil. End quote. This is the world these men lived in. At 0545 on the 3rd of October, 1918, the sky exploded over Sompi and Blancmont as the preparatory artillery unleashed its storm on the Germans. It was time to go. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at, at WW1Podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.